This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society. And we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. And hello, Hearts of Oak. Thank you once again for joining us on another interview. And it's pre-record, and it is a, a guest I had the privilege of meeting over on the west coast of the States, over in LA, at the American Freedom Alliance Conference, and that is Patrick Wood. Patrick, thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Good to be here. Uh, love to talk to people using this advanced technology across the world. It's just incredible. It's like being in the next room. Absolutely. We can be eight, 10 time zones apart, and yet we can chat face to face. Absolutely <laughs> wonderful. And a lot to pack in to 45 minutes. I I thoroughly um, enjoyed your uh, your talk at the American Freedom Alliance Conference and enjoyed chatting to you after. But if I can give just a little flavor of uh, who you are and where this could go to our audience, uh, Patrick Wood is a leading and critical expert on sustainable development, green economy, Agenda 21, 2030, and historic technocracy, terms we've touched on a lot, and I know Patrick will delve deeper into them. He's the author of Technocracy, The Hard Road to World Order, which we've used as our title for this, Technocracy Rising, The Trojan Horse of Global Transformation, and co-author of The Trilaterals Over Washington, uh, which is another topic we have not touched on. His current research builds in the Trilateral Commission, focusing on technocracy, transhumanism, scientism, and how these are transforming global economics, politics, and religion. And at the bottom there, you can go to Technocracy News, technocracy.news, and is a website that Patrick has put together, which will give you news from all different areas. Uh, so go and make use of that. And citizensforfreespeech.org, which maybe we will speak about a little bit further on. But Patrick, there are, I guess probably the first thing, could I ask you to introduce yourself to our audience? I, I've touched on some of those, but and a lot of the terms we've come across. But if you could take me a moment or two and introduce yourself before we jump into the topic at hand. Certainly. I've been studying globalization for 45 years now. And I started to uh, research and, and write way back in the late 1970s. And that was a time when I ran into uh, another Brit uh, by the name of uh, Anthony Sutton. Mm. And uh, Anthony Sutton had come to the United States. Uh, he was a professor of economics at UCLA initially, and then he went on to Stanford University, and he got booted from there because of his work on the Trilateral Commission. Uh, he didn't give a second thought to the fact that the president of Stanford was a member of the Trilateral <laughs> Commission, and he was starting to research and write about it. And all of a sudden, kaboom, uh, he was persona non grata, and they, they froze him out. I met him shortly thereafter, and he was pretty devastated because uh, an academic uh, career is hard to replace. You know, what do you do to follow up? There's nothing like it in the world. So anyway, we uh, we started out studying the Trilateral Commission back in the 70s. And, um, you know, Tony passed in 2002, uh, left the burden of 
research on me at that point. So, you know, I've been after it again ever since. Um, here we are. Wow. Um, can I, the, those websites, can you maybe let the viewers know a little bit of what they will find mm-hmm. going to yeah. technocracy.news and also let us know what Citizens for Free Speech yeah. is and, and yeah. why you started that? Right. Uh, technocracy News and Trends is, the believe it or not, is the only website uh, that takes a critical analysis of technocracy on the internet and the whole world. There's nobody else doing what, I can't figure this out still. I, I'm happy that we're doing what we're doing, but you know, why doesn't anybody else pick up on this and just go nuts with this? They should. Now, having said that, there are a lot of people who are springboarding off of my research that's there. <clears throat> we have over 5,000 articles over the last, well, since I think about, what, 2015, uh, all indexed and categorized, and it's, it's a researcher's heaven if you want to find something out about technocracy. That's where you go. Um, but other journalists and people have as, have picked up on it. We have people like... Um, um, you know, fairly high visibility people talking about it, like James Dellingpole. You mentioned uh, an interview I did with him earlier. James gets it completely. We have James Corbett over in Japan, a Canadian that w- moved to Japan. He totally gets it. Um, and there's lots of journals and newspapers and stuff around the world that are now pretty much regularly talking in terms of, yes, it's a technocrat that did it. Hmm. In America, uh, people don't want to talk about technocracy here in America. It was... Um, there's reasons for that, I think, but um, uh, it's much more, it, I expect it to be used as a term more in Europe than I would in the United States. Let me put it that way. And I think the literature bears that out. We, I see a lot more mentions of the concept of technocracy. Largely, it's because of the EU, um, which is literally a technocrat body by definition. They're unaccountable. They're unelected. <laughs> they have pretty much complete inviability on anything they do. Uh, this is the, this is the epitome and they tell everybody else what to do, by the way, <laughs> so, which is why Britain had enough of it. <laughs> I know. I don't blame you. I think, I think every, every country in, in Europe should just uh, send these people packing and say, get out of here. We don't want you anymore. But anyway, that's, you know, that's kind of the, you know, it's kind of the long and the short of it. Uh, Citizens for free speech is, a nonprofit organization. And I started in 2018 after I realized that, that there was collusion going on between big social media to cancel people, to take them out of the ethersphere. Uh, somebody get canceled on, on Facebook one day, next day it was Twitter. <laughs> Boom. Then next after that, next day it was YouTube. Um, this was so obvious to me as I was looking, you know, studying social media platforms that I said, boy, we're in big trouble because now these, it's not just independent organization doing it. Now they are colluding together. This would be comparable, in, uh, for instance, in terms of, uh, let's say, Nazi Germany. Once upon a time, Nazi Germany was independent. But, well, as it was rising, it was independent. But by the time World War II rolled around, you had the Axis and the Allies lined up. You know, various countries had chosen sides and they were acting in concert to, to bring war to each other, you see. So <clears throat> the the concept of the axis, uh, looking back at history, is what I saw happening with social media, with Google, with 
well, even companies like Amazon, there were others as well, but those are kind of the obvious ones. So we set out to protect and defend free speech. And I found out since then that um, free speech is a universal concept. It's not just something America has. <laughs> Everybody in the world understands free speech. Some don't have it, but they understand it and they want it. Um, so, you know, we're not, we're not a global organization. We're a nonprofit for America, but, uh, we have a lot of, you know, foreign members that have come in and said, can we watch what you're doing? <laughs> and I say, yeah, sure. What can I say? I can't, can't say no to them. So we do have, we do have a number of people that follow us from afar to see what we're doing and how we're rescuing it. And I get emails. I, you mentioned Bulgaria. I got an email a couple of years ago from, from somebody in a follower in Bulgaria and he wrote me an email and spoke reasonably good English. And, um, <clears throat> he said, um, we here in Europe are really screwed yeah. and we're looking to you Americans to save us again. <laughs> I thought, Oh man, you're looking, you may be looking at the wrong people <laughs> to, to, to bail you out, but we're trying. You know, we realize this is a global thing that's going on right now. It's not just America. It's not Democrat, Republican. This is a global issue. And we are literally in a world war right now, in my opinion. This technocracy is, rage, is waging a war against all of humanity and all of civilization. And it need, we need to treat it that way. This, this is a world war of a different sort. It's not a hot war like in Ukraine right now. It's a technological war. But it has the same effect as dominating and subjugating people, forcing them to do what they want you to do, corralling you, micromanaging you, oppressing you, and it's happening everywhere. There's not one country on earth that is free of this scourge. So if that's a nutshell. <laughs> oh, well, can we jump in at technocracy? Probably the, oh, the first, I think the first time probably most maybe Europeans came across the term, certainly using any governmental sense, was in Italy when they talked about a, a technocratic government when uh, the political system uh, wasn't producing the results that were expected, uh, probably yeah. by the EU, and therefore it was a government put in place. But technocracy is a term that's not necessarily widely understood uh, so I think that's probably the best place to start. Do you want to unpack that term? It's worth unpacking for sure. There's two ways people will look at it initially. The common way is ruled by experts. Hmm. It ruled by scientists or engineers. You know, you see people like Anthony Fauci standing up and saying, thus stay as science. Uh, you must follow the science. Um, ruled by technology uh, or, you know, by science, by technology, whatever, by experts is... It's legitimate. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's much, much more than that. Hmm. Because the movement dates back to the 1930s when the Great Depression was uh, all over the planet, but especially here. And um, scientists and engineers at Columbia University in 1932 decided they could do better yeah. because they thought capitalism was going to die. They, that, that was a false assumption. They, they didn't, it didn't die. <laughs> But they thought it was going to die. So they said, we're going to invent a brand new economic system. It's not going to be a price-based economic system because they believe that was failed. It was going to be a, a resource-based economic system. And instead of being controlled by money, 
they would control the economic activity, output, and consumption by energy. Hmm. And they reason, I think probably right, rightfully so in, in one way, energy is the fluid. It's oil in your engine, right? It, it, it makes things work the way they're supposed to work. You have to have some type of a financial system to make an economic system work. They said energy is a way to do it. So they said about they wanted to replace money, price-based economic money, with uh, with energy script, where everybody in society would get uh, a certain amount of energy script depending on the forecast of energy produced during that next period, and people would spend money on goods and services based on how much energy it took to make those goods and services. See? So it was kind of a they they sought to balance things out. Um, and of course, all economic activity requires energy. You, you can't do anything without energy. Factories don't run without energy. People can't get to work if they don't have spend some energy to get there. Even if it's riding a bicycle, you're spending energy. So the scheme had some logic on, on the surface of it that appealed to a lot of people at the time. There was over 500,000 card-carrying, dues-paying members of the Technocracy Incorporated movement in North America at one time. It fell on deaf ears, finally, uh, after World War II got underway. It kind of fizzled because people saw, well, hey, technocracy or um, the capitalism is not dead, so what do we need technocracy for? So it kind of fell away. But in the meantime, technocracy, as soon as it got started here, it jumped the Atlantic Ocean into Europe almost immediately. And chapters were set up, the most prominent chapter was set up in Germany, by the way, and and they, they said, well, we don't have any relationship to the American technocracy. But they did because they produced a magazine where they merely took the articles from U.S. magazine, the technocrat, mm. and they translated them to German. And they said, but we're not connected. <laughs> it's like, sure, right. Um, and those technocrats uh, went through World War II, I might add, serving uh, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi, the whole Nazi regime. Um, Many of them got off scot-free, uh, never, you know, really identifying themselves as a Nazi, but they were the technicians behind the scenes, mm -hmm. if you will. So uh, technocracy, uh, as they defined it back then uh, themselves, this is their own definition, they said, technocracy is the science of social engineering, the scientific operation of the entire social mechanism to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population, for the first time in human history, it would be done as a scientific, technical, and engineering problem. This is kind of the heartbeat of, of, of the, the whole dogma of technocracy. It's an economic system controlled by energy, but it's also overlaid with social engineering. Now, engin social uh, sciences is not a science. They're not sciences, you understand. It's a pseudoscience. You, you can't apply the, the principles of hard sciences like physics and math and so on mm. to biology to social issues. Um, so, uh, you know, the whole idea of the, the science of social engineering was really scary from day one. And a lot was written about it in the last century, by the way, under the auspices of scientism. This is the heartbeat of scientism, which is a religious proposition you had uh, actually, there was quite a bit of literature that came out of Europe and out of actually the UK as well. We had C.S. Lewis wrote extensively yeah. on scientism and the dangers of scientism. And that was in the mid-century, last, last mm -hmm. century. 
F.A. Hayek wrote extensively about it, very critically of scientism, said, watch out for this. This will get you. It's crazy. Um, so that's what technocracy was. And they, they had a big ego. They thought they could do it. They thought they could pull it off. Uh, they didn't at the time. But Columbia University lived on, of course. It was the most progressive university in the world at the time, and probably still is, too. Maybe not, but there's there's others. You have a few in the U.K. <laughs> probably surpass it now. Um, but Columbia University was where Zbigniew Brzezinski turned up uh, as a young political science professor in the in the 60s. And he wrote a book in the at, uh, in late 60s, first an article, then a book, and actually got produced published, I think, in 1970, called Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. At that point, <clears throat> uh, and, and by the way, the word technocracy was outlawed at Columbia University. You couldn't use that word. They wow. completely outlawed it. So he substituted technotronic. <laughs> and I read the book again after I discovered technocracy. And I said, yeah, I just, you know, it's warmed over technocracy. Same stuff. Um and so Brzezinski brought it to the world stage with this book, and that's when David Rockefeller picked up on him. Uh, saw the book, saw the article, saw Brzezinski, and he said, man, this, this guy is brilliant. He's a strategist, and he's the guy that can help me uh, with my cronies get world domination and dominate the entire planet. <clears throat> that's when the Trilateral Commission was started in 1973 as a direct result of his relationship with Brzezinski and this book, I might add. Well, um, I mean, the, can you open up the trilateral commission? Because again, this is a term we've come across started similar time to the yeah. world economic forum. Yeah. And it's an organization again, which few people have little or no understanding about. Yes. So trying to <clears> unpack that. And I guess it's rule in society today. Yes. It, it's a, this is a deep topic and it's, it's, a very deep topic for Europeans to understand for sure, because the European Union, well, let me back up just a minute. The, the, the Trilateral Commission was started by David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski in 1973. Mm. They drew a membership from North America, Japan, and Europe. Um, North America, there were some Canadian members. Most of them, North American members were from the U.S. Um, but Japan and Europe had... Uh, uh, an equal amount of people from North as North America. So there's about a hundred, a couple of hundred, uh, maybe 225 people from all around the world that belong to the trilateral commission. Their stated objective was to create a new international economic order. We didn't know what new meant at the time. I know now that new meant new, <laughs> it meant technocracy. It was a brand new economic system, mm. but they set about implementing policies in all these various regions in, in Japan and in the U S and in Europe. Um, I've traced the the American development of how they even how these people have impacted America extensively, but they also extensively impacted Europe. Mm. And if anybody wanted to study the history of the Trilateral Commission in Europe, it's it's there. You can actually you can get uh, a, a copy of our book from from Amazon or online services over there. Uh, there's some I think there's Amazon.co.uk or something like yeah. that. You can, Trilateral over Washington, volumes one and two. That's that's those are the books that Sutton and I wrote. Address this a little bit, and I've addressed this a little bit on Technocracy.news as well. <clears throat> but the European Union was started by members of the Trilateral Commission, wow. and it was influenced every step of the way by members of the Trilateral Commission, and they have accomplished their goal there as they did in China and as they have here in the United States. 
to create basically uh, a system of operation where it's controlled and, and ordered by unelected, unaccountable technocrats who simply do what they want to do without respect to the people that they serve, quote unquote, serve. <laughs> um, and there's so many instances that where you can see involvement of um, the of trilateral commission members. For instance, the Agenda 21 document that was uh, created out of the Rio de Janeiro conference that the UN put on, it was the uh, unsaid United Nations Conference on Economic Development. Mm. Um, the Rio de Janeiro conference produced the Agenda 21 Sustainable Development Doctrine and Biodiversity Doctrine as well. Um, that whole body of thinking, sustainable development, was created by Brew Harlem Brundtland from Europe. And she was head of a UN commission that produced a book called Our Common Future. Hmm. The United Nations hails her as the mother of sustainable development, even today. Wow. She's a hero. She's still alive, by the way. She's a hero. And she wrote that she wrote the book, created the doctrine of sustainable development, or at least codified it. And the, the question comes up, like in this place and so many others, was she writing on behalf of some other party, some other group of people, mm -hmm. or herself, you know, where she's just being the philosopher queen or something and pontificating and say, this is the way it ought to be. Or was she expressing trilateral commission doctrine to create a new international economic order? I suggest the latter. It's pretty self-evident to me that that's what she was doing. But we see this, we see these people involved at these critical junctures all over the place. Here's another one. Uh, Peter Sutherland, an interesting guy. He just, he passed, I think he passed in 2018. Um, an Irish, they, they call him, oh, he's an Irish businessman. Well, yeah, Buck. He was also, uh, you know, one of the top international banksters in the world for, for decades. And he's like guys at the top of his, and he was, a, he was a member of the trial out of commission. Not only that, but he was in the, um, what do you call it? The hierarchy, the, the, the executive director of the European group. Hmm. of the Trilateral Commission, okay? Peter Sutherland. Well, Peter Sutherland, after he got loose of the banking world, became a liaison for the United Nations. And he became a special envoy for immigration. Okay, so here's Peter Sutherland, Trilateral Commission member, pumping the globalist Great Reset, you know, World Economic Forum, Trilateral Commission, New International Economic Order. He went around, this is back in the mid um the mid-teens, like 20, I want to say 20, 2010, 28, 2010, something like that. He went around to all the nations in Europe and took uh, the so-called quotas for immigration to various countries and said, these are going to be your quotas. And when, you know, if, if people come to your country, you need to accept them in and you need to, you know, be kindly to them, right? There wasn't any mass immigration going on at that time, but mm. the United Nations said, we have a plan. <laughs> We're going to fix that. <laughs> we have a plan. And we want to make sure that you're going to take these people in. And so he went around and, and beat up nation after nation in Europe. They didn't know what was going to, what was going to happen, but they beat him up and they said, okay, these are your quotas. And they said, okay, we agree to that. Fine. Yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah, it ain't going to happen, but yeah, we'll do that. 
So then the immigration wave started, right? From the South, from the Islamic world. And all of a sudden Europe is getting flooded. Every, almost every country in Europe is getting flooded with immigrants that are swamping and over, just overtaking countries that they couldn't cope with it all. When it really got to be a mess, and I'm, I'm not living this, I didn't, don't live in Europe, I've only been there a couple of times, but I know you guys have been living this, and you have friends, I'm sure, in Europe that are, have been living this and watching, mm. watching the train wreck happen. Yeah. When it really got bad and, and nations were starting to you know, rethink the issue and say, you know what, this isn't working out too well, we're going to close our border. We're going to build a wall like we want to do here in the United States, at our southern border. And we're going to we're going to stop this immigration stuff, man. We can't handle it. And these people refuse to assimilate and into our culture. And they're creating a bifurcated nation, yada, yada. Well, Peter Sutherland took another route around Europe. And on behalf of the United Nations, traveled with some United Nations uh, mucky mucks uh, as well. And they went around nation after nation and beat them up again and said, don't you dare renege on your commitment to us or other bad things will happen to you. <laughs> we will make sure of that. And basically forced them to keep their quotas open. And now we know, I mean, we can look at this and say, well, Europe has been invaded, hasn't it? It really has been invaded. It hasn't been in the, in the normal way, like, for instance, uh, it hasn't been like, okay, Russia crossed the border into Ukraine and started a war. No, this has been a different kind of a, this has been a stealth war where the invaders, quote unquote invaders, were just, you know, ordinary people that were shooed out of uh, places where they couldn't find work or whatever. Say, hey, go to Europe, man. I got everything. <laughs> you could have free this and free that. And why there's just all kinds of great benefits. Go there. And all of a sudden, the nature and character of Europe has changed. This was a trilateral commission policy. Same thing has happened on our southern border down here uh, in, in the United States with our invasion from Mexico. Um, we can't apparently close our border for love nor money uh, because the entire world is against us in this. Yeah. And you say, well, what's the point of that? Why? Okay, so why isn't there mass immigration into China? How about India? Does anybody want to go to India? No. Does anybody want to go to Iceland? Not really. <laughs> How about Africa? Oh, you want to go to Uganda? No, no, no problem there. Only in Europe and only in the United States do we have these immigration problems. And there that's a set policy of the Trilateral Commission to break down the fabric of society kind of a scorched earth policy, if you will, so that they can build it up. That's what Klaus Schwab said. We're going to build back better. Hmm. Really? What does that mean? Build back better. Oh, you mean you're going to burn our house down and then you're going to build back a better house for us, right? Uh, the concept of build back better only applies when something's been destroyed. <laughs> well, in, I mean, in, in Europe, we have obviously the EU dictate what countries must do, certainly in immigration, and countries are punished if they don't fit into that. So we've seen Poland, we've seen Hungary punished because they don't feel. We've seen Greece told you must open up and take as many. Um, so we have the EU, I guess, dictating how Europe operates. Um, and then we have, I guess, the European Central Bank dictating financially uh, how 
what level of debt, what level of spending uh, any country does, unless you're France, and then you can do what you like. But uh, we have these organizations. So how, where does the um, trilateral commission kind of fit into that's a European context I've given, but how does that kind of fit into that jigsaw? Well, one of the most powerful groups of the original Trilateral Commission were the international bankers. Mm. David Rockefeller, for instance, was chairman of Chase Manhattan Bank at the time. That was the second largest bank in the world. Um, they've since merged with J.P. Morgan, so now it's J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, but the... The global banking companies like the J.P. Morgan Chase's, like Citicorp, like Deutsche Bank, and so on, and so on HSBC, these banks um, are networked together through the central banks in each individual country, whatever their host mm -hmm. country is, which in turn is networked into the Bank for International Settlements. You have a pyramid. From the top down, the BIS is a central bank, two central banks. The central banks around the world cater to certain other uh, international banks that are in those host areas. And all of these banks, from top to bottom, are private. They're privately owned. They're not government entities. We talk about the, um, you know, the Federal Reserve. It's not, it has nothing to do with America as a nation. It's a private bank, has mm. private ownership has stock is issued it pays dividends <laughs> this is not a something controlled by our congress and neither is the bank of england for that matter you think mm -hmm. well england that's it's got to be something to do with government there no it's a private bank every central bank in the world is a private bank the bank for international settlements itself is a private bank so the thing with the central banks is there's one bank per country. You don't have multiple central banks per country, but each central bank has one client and one client only. That is his host country. So the Federal Reserve only serves, supposedly, not there's exceptions, but only serves America. Um, the Bank of J Japan only serves Japan. You get, you get my point. The Bank for International Settlements is the glue that binds all this network of central banks together. Now, this is, a, this is a very scurrilous bunch because the Bank for International Settlements, as well as their network of central banks, are intricately tied into the International Monetary Fund as well as the World Bank. They operate together. They're, they're a pack, if you will, like a pack of wolves. And together, they have created this machine of control, usually using money and conditionalities to enforce their control over nation states hmm. and when nation states get in debt to one central bank or another or to the imf uh, or to the world bank those organizations then impose their will on those nations that are now slaves or subservient to the money masters if you will this has been used all over the planet for the last hundred years it's gotten worse and worse, and now since the year 2000 especially, it's ramped up to where now it's just blatant. The, the, the control, the demands, the conditionalities, absolutely blatant. So, for instance, if Peter Sutherland, the uh, international banker that he was, says to Greece, okay, this example, I don't know that he said this, but just play along. If he goes to Greece and says, 
hey, I empathize with you. I know you have a lot of trouble. You know, you got a lot of people coming in, all that kind of stuff. But you did agree that, that you know that you'd keep your borders open, blah blah blah. And uh, and Greece would protest and say, you know, we can't we can't take this anymore. We're going crazy. Uh, somebody like Peter Sutherland, who is connected to all these different banking entities and stuff, could just simply say, you know, you you have applied for a bailout loan from the IMF. Remember that? <laughs> you remember that that application you put in? You wanted how many hundreds of millions of dollars to bail you out? Well, that that loan application might not go so well hmm. if you don't keep your quota promises. You see, yeah. oh, now I see the deal. <laughs> yeah, okay. I We won't get our loan if we don't do what you tell us to do over here. And that's exactly how it happens all over the planet. There's been books written about this, by the way. So I'm not speculating here. Well, it, I mean, uh, it, it just in, in Greece and Ireland, that happened because they were told you must, Ireland was told you must ramp up your, your business taxes, which is what Ireland are, uh, is a is a, a country that attracts foreign companies yeah. to invest there, and Greece was told you need to ramp up your taxes on tourism, which is what Greece relies on. Which made me this doesn't make sense because you're lending money, but you're destroying the industries that can help a country expand and get out of the problem yes. it's in. Yes, that's exactly right. So this is a very deep network. As all I have to say, it's it, it's um, when the, when the Rockefeller crowd set out in 1973 to create this new international economic order. They took everything, everything that was appropriate in sight. For instance, back then, the BIS and the World Bank and IMF were already in existence. Okay, they were already there. We can't blame that on the Trilateral Commission. But they took those institutions over, lock, stock, and barrel, and used them for their own purposes. Okay, so... And we, and I know people are going to argue with me. Well, Europe, Europe traditionally appoints... The leader of the I, of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, the United States appoints the World Bank presidents. Yeah. That's just the tradition that's been established. I don't think it's a law anywhere, but that's the way it is. From 1973 to something like early 2000s, there were nine presidents of the World Bank that we had appointed. Six of those were members of the Trilateral Commission. Six out of nine. Is that just coincidence? And that's not to say the other three were against the Trilateral Commission, far from it. They were operators for, for them. But six out of nine were members of the Trilateral Commission. That, that just speaks volumes to you. Who's in control here? Who's pushing the levers? Well, the new international economic order has, you know, that's where it started in the early 70s. Today, we look at people like the World Economic Forum, and Klaus Schwab saying it openly now, this is the way, you know, we're in charge of the future. It's, it's ours to build, not yours. And <clears throat> the makeup, by the way, of the World Economic Forum is almost, it's very similar to the makeup of membership of the Trilateral Commission. You have lawyers, international bankers, you have corporate entities, multinational corporations, and so on. The same type of groups of people, very important politicians, um, as well. And um, now they're in the wide open, just saying it flat out. This is the way it's going to be. The future is ours. We're, we're going to declare what the future is and we're going to do it. And the people have no discussion along the way. This has been 
it, it was imagined in the first place, if you will, and then implemented by the people who had the money to do it using all of the mechanism, like the banking, the whole banking network with the IMF, the World Bank, and the BIS, using national governments like in Europe, using outside actors like Peter Sutherland from the United Nations, with a, all of which have a, had a common objective to pound into submission those who would dare resist. And this is where we find ourselves today. We're all in the, we're all in the same boat. Europe is suffering right now because of these idiots at the EU. Um, you know, at the, uh, at the uh, this this unelected parliament of people who are just completely unplugged from reality, doing crazy things, yeah. and the people are saying, "Yeah, you're doing crazy things and you're having fun, but we're getting punished down here at the ground level. We're getting punished. We're the ones who are going to freeze next winter for Pete's sake when the gas gets cut off. You know, it's like we're the ones who are going to starve." If the food system is destroyed, like in Ukraine and you know other, some other important countries, like the Netherlands, which is a huge exporter mm -hmm. of agricultural goods, say, so, yeah, you you just have your little fun up there, you EU technocrats, you, while the rest of us down here are going to get punished for your idiocy. But you know that's from the people's point of view, it's idiocy. To the people up at the top that are pulling the strings to them it's like mission accomplished <laughs> well you said to that them, it's mission accomplished the hard road to world order and again new world order is yeah. is the term is is used a lot is that just about I mean, where we are at the moment is that just mass globalization is that removing individual countries from their own control and large organizations actually setting the agenda is it about financing international financing which again takes away a central country's ability um where can when you talk about kind of world order new world order how does that fit in and i guess my second part is how does the last two and a half years fit into that as well right <clears throat> well yeah the last two and a half years especially uh when covid hit in July in June or excuse me January of 2020 mm. the first thing i noticed and i'm i'm not a medical guy so i'm not a scientist by a long shot but what i noticed happened was all the people who were pumping global warming hysteria uh like imperial college of london for instance that yeah. had been famous for their crazy crackpot models that you know the seas are going to rise and the ice caps are going to melt and all that kind of stuff yeah. The same people that were pumping climate fear jumped the track and got on COVID. Hmm. It's like, and I, I, because I've been watching the climate warming thing for a long time, you know, just watching them work and all this corrupted data and, yep. you know, scandal after scandal. So when I saw this group of people show up in the COVID mix, pumping again, widespread fear hmm. primarily. You're all going to die. You know, the, the virus is going to rise and it's going to spread and you're all going to die. You'll see there's going to be millions of people in the street. And it's like, okay, there's something else going on here. And I, and I, I very quickly determined, I just, in my own head, that this was technocracy's coup d'etat yep. with COVID. This was the coup d'etat. They had planned for that day for a long time, but they had not been able to get the whole world marching in lockstep. Exactly. 
Hmm. Okay, there was there was pockets of people obeying and countries obeying the, the doctrines of Agenda 21 and sustainable development, but there had never been the whole package wrapped up in one where everybody's doing the same thing at the same time. And this was technocracy's coup d'etat to pull off this, this global panic and drive all the nations of the world into submission to answer to one supranational body mm. of technocrats. And those were located mostly at the United Nations at the time. I don't believe they're the final controllers, by the way. You've got people like at the World Economic Forum that yeah. are, are plenty good at being doing that, playing that role. But you had the United Nations going out to these countries and saying, now you have to do what we tell you to do. And you say, well, why, why we, we really don't want to do that. Why do we have to do what you tell us to do? And, and so they'll come out and say, do you remember, and they'll pull it out, do you remember the memorandum of understanding that you signed 10 years ago that gave us the power to declare a global health emergency? And this is what you must do when that's declared, and this is what we must do. Do you remember you signed that? gasp well gee, i guess we did we didn't really know what we signed but uh, i guess we did so then the, the proposition is you obey or else hmm. you obey or else we'll do this that and the other and so you know the countries of the world were browbeat and and beat up into submitting to the world health organization's dictates and so off to the race, two years later, here we are, two and a half years later, here we are. And we see all of the objectives that have been achieved uh, by this war, I, I say this war on humanity. The health of the world is greatly degraded because of messenger RNA experimental vaccines. Nope. The economic system has been totally ripped to shreds now. We're on a on the cusp of a financial crisis where digital currencies are going to come in, central bank digital currencies being planned all over the world. We have an energy crisis going on right now, <clears throat> thanks in part to Russia and Ukraine, but nevertheless, it's a global thing, an energy crisis. We have a food crisis upon us, again, thanks in part to Ukraine, but also to, to the whole mantra that, hey, we need to get rid of nitrogen fertilizer because it's evil, 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 and the farmers can't grow food but they don't care the farmers can't grow food. That's all part of the depopulation program anyway. We've got all these things coming off at the same time. One author I like, I posted an article. Uh, I thought it was a great title. He called it the polycrisis of doom. Polycrisis. Wow. Yep, that just kind of, you know. Yep. You So you can see the whole coup d'etat. If you look back and forward, kind of, you know, back and forth, you can kind of see it coming together with all of these different pincer movements on society in critical areas that we cannot live without. And now they're dominated. They have dominated. They're, <clears throat> they're trying to dominate every one of those areas. Mm. Can, as we, as we finish, what is your, you, you speak at conferences, you do many interviews, you write prolifically. Um, what to you, what is your kind of single, issue that you're particularly concerned about the thing where you can put your finger on the last few months to say that this really rings true and this is what kind of keeps me up at night type of thing but what is the the one thing for you 
The big thing I've been talking about recently, I've been involved with the Crimes Against Humanity Task Force <clears throat> that um, it was headed by uh, uh, Dr. Reiner Fulmich out of Germany. He's a lawyer, actually. But uh, I've been speaking with this group. It's him, Dr. Judy Mikovits, um, Dr. Mike Eden, and a couple of other people about crimes against humanity. What does that mean? My part of the presentation that I bring in has to do with the takeover of all genetic material on Earth. This is very, this is very disturbing. It should be disturbing to everybody. This really kind of bleeds over into transhumanism, mm. which I believe transhumanism and technocracy are like Siamese twins joined at the hip. But nevertheless, the takeover of genetic material has crept up on us. <clears throat> but since 1992, that's where it really started in earnest since 1992. Um, we've seen Monsanto has taken care of modifying seeds and grasses and plants and stuff for the sake of agriculture and food, which they're now licensing to the farmers to grow. We have insects that have been uh, modified, GMO, with kill switches like mosquitoes so that they breed and they can't have offspring. You have animals that have been genetically modified now. you got uh, like double meat uh, pigs and uh, cows that produce a different kind of milk, et cetera. <clears throat> you have um, basically, you know, every living thing on earth has been genetically modified already. And now the last frontier is humans themselves. And they're coming, this same group is coming after humanity to get their hooks into the genome, the human genome, to create human, humanity 2.0. They're bold. They're bold about this. They're not. This is not just uh, you know me speculating. This is what they say. They're going to create humanity 2.0 and correct all of the errors that our DNA has that they think are errors. Well, I'm happy with the way I am. I don't know about you, but it's like no, thank you. I don't want. <laughs> yeah, I don't want you to change my DNA. <clears throat> but they're intending to do this. This is what messenger RNA injections is all about. Yeah, completely. And once, and I said this when the first needle came out, if they can get one needle into your arm, you will never be able to get loose from additional needles that come to either correct the problems they've created or to prevent you from doing, getting something, whatever, down the road because of what they have destroyed in your immune system. Hmm. And this is exactly what's happened. The health of humanity right now is just so devastated. And it's because of this lust that these medical scientists have, big pharma included, have to get into what Moderna calls the software of life that lives inside your body. Hmm. <laughs> this yeah. is crackpot stuff. I mean, I tell you, this is this is a James Bond movie in the making. You know, where's 007 when you need him? <laughs> He's like. He's missing in action. Where's Sean Connery for Pete's sake? <laughs> you know, bring him back. Have him go, you know, head off these people. I mean, is this, you know, you want, if you ever see any Jay's Bond movies, you know, this is Blofeld again. He's like, come back to life, take over the world. No, we, we're, we have to be done with this. And at, at this point, the poor people that, that have been tricked into taking these injections, they're trapped now. Hmm. And many of them realize they're trapped, and they're so sorry and so sad that they're trapped. My heart breaks for them; it really does. A lot of people just had no clue they were they were tricked, they were deceived into taking these shots. Hmm. And I know that was a big. You know, and I watched Great Britain from a distance. Uh, 
they didn't give anybody any option if if they no. could help it. You take it or we're going to you know, beat you up or something. It's like, oh, come on, guys. I mean, it's not your place to do that anyway. But they did. So the coup d'etat has taken place. The coup d'etat is still underway. So it's, 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 uh, it's expanded into an all-out war with multiple fronts now, not just the mm. vaccine. Now we have the energy crisis, the food crisis, the water crisis, the financial crisis, the blah, 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 and on down the line. We we're, we have a mess on our hands, and most people still do not understand that we are at war with these people. No, exactly. Well, Will, you mentioned my, we had Mike Eden last week, and fantastic individual, and a lot of respect for him and for his work. But on that, we I will bring to a close. I will encourage people to go to Citizen for Free Speech. Two of the individuals on the advisory panel or Dr. Sherry Tenpenny and Alex Newman. We had Alex on a couple of weeks ago on TransUnion. We've had Dr. Sherry Tenpenny on twice. So those two names alone for our viewers will give a, a ringing endorsement of that and do go and make use our viewers of Technocracy News and Citizens for Free Speech. Patrick, I appreciate your time. Thank you for coming along and sharing your thoughts on this, which Technocracy, a topic that we haven't touched on. So I, I appreciate your time coming on today. My pleasure, Peter, and I, I hope we can do it again. There are some topics, important ones we missed, but I just have to wait for another time. Oh, definitely. We will definitely have a part two and possibly a part three, and it'll not be as long a gap as you had with James Dellingpool. So I will come <laughs> back to you. We will arrange because these topics do need a, a further, uh, deeper dive and certainly expanded upon. So absolutely. But all now say thank you to our viewers for watching. And as this is a pre-record, you can download immediately as a podcast on Podbean or any of the other podcasting platforms you use. Um, and do make sure and bookmark both of those technocracy news and citizensforfreespeech.org. And on that, I wish our viewers a wonderful rest of your day. And we'll be back with you very soon for our next interview. So thank you very much and goodbye. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list, donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofoak.org. Thank you for listening.